0: Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Let us worship God. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father in Christ, we praise you for the gift of your Son the beloved one who was rejected, the Savior who looked defeated on the cross, but who is indeed the Savior of the world, the King of heaven and earth. Be present with us now, we pray. Show us in his death the victory that crowns the ages, and in his broken body the love that unites heaven and earth through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit,
1: one God, now and
0: forever. Amen. Our hymns number 316, the Mighty God the Lord.) <clears throat> In humility and repentance, let us confess our sin before God, who is the Lord, and is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Let us pray together the prayer printed in the bulletin. Eternal and merciful God, you have loved us with a love beyond our understanding and you have set us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Yet we have strayed from your way. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed through what we have done and what we have left undone. As in Christ we have redemption through his blood. Forgive us our trespasses. We praise you and give you thanks that you forgive us. Grant us now, we pray, the grace to die daily to sin and to rise daily to new life in Christ, who lives and reigns with you, and in whose strong name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I declare to you as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ that all those who have faith in him and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. Let us say together, praise be to God. People of God, scripture teaches us, the apostles teach us to live by faith and not by sight. The Apostle Paul told the church we walk by faith, not by sight. Walking was a metaphor for talking about living life. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, tells us that Abraham was called out to a place that God would give to him as an inheritance, and he lived in it as the land of promise among the people who, were already, who already lived there. And if you recall, he was sojourning in that land. He was traveling through it, but he had to live by faith. Later, Israel traveled forward to that land, being required to believe before they laid eyes on it as they went through the wilderness. And so we must live by faith as the people of the kingdom of God according to the word of Christ. We must live by faith like Abraham did, like Israel had to, and now as we look forward to Christ um, bringing his kingdom into this world and bringing to completion his work here on earth. So we are to live as by faith and not by sight. And that means that as we know that the kingdom of God is present through Jesus Christ, we believe that it is at work, even when we don't see things that, that would um, encourage us by appearances and by sight. And yet we can be confident that it is here because the word of God tells us so and Christ has accomplished it. So we begin to live now as if nothing is the way that it was before. We are to live with this focus on what Christ has done and how he's bringing in this new, wonderful life of God into this world through his work as Savior and and our Redeemer. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say amen. Our hymn is number 610, Take Up Your Cross, the Savior Said. Take up your cross, the Savior said, if you would my disciple be, take up your cross. Guide you to a better home. It
2: points to glory or the
0: grave. Take up your cross and follow. Please join with me in bringing our prayers to our Heavenly Father through Christ. Let us pray. Merciful God, our Father, you so love the world that you gave your only Son that he might suffer and go the way of the cross for us. We offer up our prayers in his name, and in our worship, we join his ministry of intercession. We pray for the church. May it be faithful, a true witness of your sacrificial love in a world that's full of sinful disorder, in a city of selfishness and rebellion, and to people who are self-centered and in trouble. May we be a testimony that the way to reconciliation with you and wholeness is the way of Jesus Christ and his cross. May we not discount the exertion and hardship of the way of cross, but neither let us turn the cross of Christ into the corruption of sin that is so common in our world. In other words, deforming the cross for our own selfishness. Give us the endurance of the suffering of sacrifice and patience in helping each other and relinquishing the distractions that entice us away from the life of Christ. O oh, Father, may we manifest the real suffering of Christ for this world. Hear our prayers for the church as it follows Christ by the way of the cross. We offer our prayers for the congregation of your people to be encouraged as they come to hear your word from the pulpit and see the gospel at the table, whether they be tired or busy, joyful or sorrowful. May their hearts leap within them to see and hear the church pray and sing and confess and receive your word. We especially remember our own ministers and elders and deacons. Here are our prayers for them. and we pray for the ministers and elders of our presbytery and various churches and specifically we remember Michael Shout and John Ferguson, Dale Van Dyke, Bruce Buchanan. Almighty God, we ask that you would bless uh, we bless you for our nation, for its vastness, for its prosperity, for its freedoms. Give us discipline in the use of our freedoms. Give us knowledge in the moral order of your creation make us generous in the distribution of our resources and we pray for those who rule over us for our governing officials for our president and congressmen and women may our leaders act with virtue and show respect to all those in this country and may they promote what is right and good we also remember the other nations of this world and and particularly the Aggression going on in Ukraine, Russia's aggression against Ukraine, for China that seems to want to rattle its saber so often. Hear our prayers for our leaders and the leaders and nations in other parts of the world. Hear our prayers. Oh God, you are most compassionate. To the sick and the faltering. We remember all those stories about Jesus Christ healing those who were sick and who were grieving. And so we pray for the weak and the grieving and the needy. For those who were ill in body or soul, we pray for the Mesner family and their grief. We pray for Eduardo and Shirley, for Bob and Fawn, for Jeff and Linda, for our friends Becky, Karen, Angie, Chris, Tom. Bob, Phil, Gladys, Dominique, Rebecca, and others we name to you in silence. Heal the sick, strengthen the weak, comfort the sorrowful. May they find help in time of need and give them your grace through Jesus Christ. And for other needs that are on our minds this morning, we make our petitions in silence. Please help us to meet new people who may come to this church and be in our worship, hear the gospel, perhaps become members. We also pray that the men in the jail last night who heard the gospel would have faith in Jesus. Bless the church's education so that each person in our congregation would be strengthened and mature in mind, the mind of Christ and godly living. We pray for the young members to take up that faith for themselves and be faithful followers of Christ in the church, even when they grow up, leave home, and begin their own lives. For all those from our church who must live in difficult home situations, give them faith to trust in you and hope for your restoration of our lives and this world in Jesus Christ, which is a restoration which we cannot see but is accomplished by him, and one day Will shine with full brightness. Now receive our prayers, O God, in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
1: And uh, join with me in our prayer for um, God's uh, illumination on our reading this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us here today and for giving us this great gift of your word and uh, putting us in a time and place where we uh, are able to read it we are we are allowed to read it and um, we thank you as well for your spirit which enlightens guide and guides us as we do read it uh, please send your spirit to be with us now open our hearts and our minds that we may understand what we hear and that may uh, stay with us and edify us and draw us closer to you not only today but in the weeks to come we pray these things in christ's name amen Lamentations. Excuse me. Sorry, mismarked in the uh, in, in the big Bible this morning. So um, our Old Testament reading is from Lamentations, chapter two. Give me a moment to find it. Verses thirteen through sixteen. never mind I, I wronged elder kelly on that there, there was one sticking out the side back in isaiah but i misunderstood our code anyway um, our old testament reading uh was is and remains limitations two verses uh 13 through 16 what can i say for you to what compare you o daughter of jerusalem what can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen you false and deceptive, Seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you, They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her. Ah! This is the day we longed for. Now we have it, we see it. Our Psalter response this morning comes from Psalm 31. Verses 9 through 18. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my
2: life is spent with sorrow, and my with My strength fails of my iniquity, and my bones waste
1: away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the of many terror side. As they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face your
2: serpent, in your
1: as o Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the lying lips be mute. Our epistle reading this morning comes from Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgotten us or forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him finally our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of mark chapter 15 verses 21 through 32 He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The word of the Lord.
0: I had a friend in high school who asked me once, close friend, if there is humor in the Bible. He enjoyed stand-up comedy, and he knew I was a Christian who took the Bible seriously, so he asked me that question, is there humor in the Bible? And ever since then, I've had this, had his question on my mind. And the answer is, in short, yes. One example is the story of Balaam and the donkey in Numbers 22, the uh, If you remember the story real quickly, I'll remind you of it. The king of Midian tried to hire Balaam to curse the people of Israel for him. And after twice refusing, Balaam was finally persuaded to go and curse Israel. But the Lord opposed Balaam, and he sent an angel to stand in his way against Balaam's mission. The angel of the Lord stood in the middle of the road with his sword drawn. Balaam could not see the angel, but the donkey could. He was riding on his donkey, and the donkey could see it. The donkey refused to go forward. Balaam, in frustration, kept beating the donkey to spur him on, and the donkey went nowhere and finally just laid down in the road. Finally, the Lord gave speech to the donkey, and the donkey said to Balaam, "'What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times?' Am I not your ass upon which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Was I ever accustomed to do so to you? Have I ever done this before to you? And Balaam had to admit, no, the donkey had never done this before. You see, the donkey recognized the Lord more than the revered seer. It's a story that encourages to laugh, uh, encourages us to laugh. Who is the real ass, Balaam or the donkey? There are stories that are humorous in the Bible, and it takes some investment in the Bible to get the humor. Without a willingness to listen to what Scripture says, we might smugly dismiss the story of Balaam as an old, silly fairy tale. But if we listen to what the Lord does in this world and what the Scripture, uh, the stories in Scripture and what it teaches us, sometimes we will laugh. Now, the Bible is full of humor, and it's also full of irony. Irony has come up several times in the Gospel of Mark. I've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and it's come up several times. A few times I've pointed that out to you. But even before our reading this morning, it has come up. There is irony in Jesus' words to his disciples when he said in Mark chapter 8, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And in another place, the scribes say something ironic about Jesus. They say he's possessed by Beelzebub, the, the prince of demons. So by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus exposes that irony with his, of this accusation when he says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. So the Gospel of Mark has irony in it, and actually it's loaded with Irony. Every culture and language has irony in it. It doesn't matter what culture language it is, Hebrew, Greek, English, Spanish, and so on. In our own American culture and literature, we have a story by O. Henry. It's famous for its irony, The Gift of the Magi. O. Henry put irony into all his stories, or just about all of them. And in this story, it's a, it's a story of a poor husband and a poor wife, his wife, who want to secretly give each other a meaningful Christmas present. The wife cuts her beautiful long hair and sells it to a local wig maker. And with that money, she she uses it to purchase a lovely gold chain for her husband's handsome pocket watch. Her husband sells his pocket watch in order to buy his wife a lovely set of hair combs. It's It's a great story, and it's full, rich with irony. Our lesson this morning is packed with irony. And there are several ways to explain irony, but this one helps us to understand our text in Mark. Irony is a literary device in which contradictory statements or situations reveal a reality that is different from what appears to be true. That reveals a reality that's different from what appears to be true. Charles Chapu explains irony as a gulf, a gulf between what is said or expected and the reality that actually is, so appearance and reality. Now, our reading this morning is part of the Passion of Jesus Christ. That Passion began at the house of Simon the Leper in Bethany at the beginning of chapter 4. We should think of his Passion as starting there, chapter 14, and then going uh, into 15. And he was at the house of Simon the Leper in Bethany, and then the Passion ends, of course, at the cross. Our text takes us to the cross of Jesus Christ. So now we're there, we're at the cross. And there are several characters in this story, but the first one we meet is Simon of Cyrene. Simon was a common name, as we discover in the story of Jesus' passion and death. I mentioned Jesus had supper at Simon the leper's house in Bethany. And, of course, Simon had somehow picked up this name leper. He probably had been a leper and then was cured of it. And so he got this name, Simon the leper. I I hope I never get tagged with that kind of a name. Jeff the the pneumonia or something like that. Um, But that was his name. Um, There's also Simon Peter in this Passion story, uh, the story of Jesus' Passion. He was one of Jesus' Jesus' disciples who denied him. And now there's Simon of Cyrene. So we have three Simons coming out in in the Passion of Christ. Cyrene was a city located on the tip of the continent of of Africa. It was on the northern coast of the continent of Africa in what is now the nation of Libya. And at the time of Jesus, it had around 5,000 people in it. Simon is a Jewish name, and therefore he may have been a Jew from a Jewish family that in the diaspora, when the Jews were carried away to other nations, uh, his family may have ended up there, and so he might be a Jew from there. Or he may have been from local African descent and was converting to Judaism. And we might further deduce that he was in Jerusalem because it was the week of the Feast of Passover, And all Jews, even outside of Palestine, were required to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover if they were able. So Mark tells us of this Simon and that he was the father of Rufus and Alexander. And we don't know for sure who they were. We can make some guesses, but those names were not unusual either. So we don't know for sure who they were, but apparently they were known to the Christian community to whom Mark was writing his gospel because why else mention them by name? He, he mentions them by name as if they would have recognized who these people were. So there's a good chance that they, the, the Christian community uh, of Mark knew these Rufus and Alexander or had heard of them. And by them, their father Simon. Jesus' crucifixion happened along one of the busy roads outside of Jerusalem. And Simon was passing by just as Jesus was being escorted to his crucifixion. It was common for Roman soldiers to force someone to carry the cross beam that would be fixed to the upright post of the cross. The person being crucified was often too weak to carry it. The crossbeam would be laid on the ground near the vertical post and the condemned would be nailed to it. And once this was done, the soldier, soldiers hoisted the cross beam with the person nailed to it up onto the post and secured it in place. Simon carried part of Jesus' cross. Now, Simon is not an incidental character in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, and I'll come back to him in a moment. But I want to bring out for you the irony in this text. The irony of the story of Jesus' crucifixion comes out with the mockery and the taunts from the other characters in our lesson. The first irony is with the Roman soldiers, Mark tells us there was an inscription put on the cross by the Roman soldiers. Now, typically, this was done for those who were considered criminals by the Roman government. Roman law authorized crucifixion as a means of death for criminals, slaves, and rebels. And whatever the charge was against them, it would be posted on the cross. As far as the Romans were concerned, Jesus was was crucified as a rebel, and so the charge against him was king of the Jews. He would have been an, if that was they, as they saw it. He would have been an unauthorized king. It was a mockery. It wasn't just putting a description up there or a title up there. It was a mockery. It was it was a way of making fun of Jesus, the King of Jews. King of the Jews was hanging on the cross. He looked like anything but a king. He was stripped naked in utter shame. He could not hold himself up. He was pinned to the wood. He was bloody with deep gashes on his body. The mockery suggested that if he was a king, he was now a defeated king, put to death by the greater Roman power. The charge on the cross was sarcasm writ large. Ha, ha, ha. Look at the king on the cross. Some kind of king is that one. Ha, ha, ha. Now, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, irony reveals a reality that is different from what appears to be true. Jesus was mocked as the king of the Jews, but he was king. For the Romans, the crucifixion of Jesus was laughable, and that's how Jesus on the cross appeared to them. But for Mark, the crucifixion of Jesus was his enthronement. Jesus on the cross was on his throne. The inscription was profoundly true. Jesus on the cross was ruling over the whole world. Jesus on the cross was conquering the powers of sin, death, and the devil. And all those miracles and exorcisms that he did during his ministry in Judea and Galilee, they were only previews of Jesus' power on the cross. Now I'll say more about what he did on the cross in the next two sermons, his abandonment and his burial, but the gospel tells us that the true, true reality is this the crucifixion of Jesus was not his defeat, it was his throne. And that's ironic. Scripture helps us see not the appearance, but the reality of Jesus' death. The second irony comes with the pedestrians who were passing by the cross. Verse 29 says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now we've got to stop for a moment and just just notice the cruelty of this taunt. Someone in excruciating pain, displayed in public like a human trophy, a man groaning in severe agony and people are hurling insults at him. It lacks human kindness and compassion. The good of being human, human good, is missing here. Those taunts bore little resemblance to the nobility of humanity. Their derision was inhuman. We should never act in cruelty to anyone, including our enemies. But they were there. They were wagging their heads. That was a gesture of contempt. It echoes what the prophet said about Jerusalem in Lamentations. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. This was a common thing in that day and age. To wag your head was a way of expressing contempt. Or what Psalm 22 says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. The taunt of these pedestrians echoes the accusation of Jesus' trial. If you were to go back to Jesus' trial and when he was uh, the Inquisition before the Jewish council, you're going to hear echoes of that accusation there. At the trial, some witnesses stood up and testified. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. In the story of Jesus' trial, Mark describes it as a false testimony. And when I preach that text, I explain to you that the testimony—this testimony—was false because Jesus never said he himself would destroy the temple. He never said that. The passers-by used this accusation that had come up at the Inquisition because it declared that Jesus himself would destroy the temple. So they picked up on that and they hurled it at Jesus. The temple, you remember, is a massive structure. It had enormous stone blocks used for the base and the rest of it built on top of that. No one man had the power to tear it down. The taunt was about Jesus using superhuman powers. If he said he has superhuman powers to destroy the temple, then he had superhuman powers to climb down from the cross. Use your superhuman power to save yourself. That was basically their taunt. And by all appearances, Jesus looked anything but superhuman on the cross. Truth be told, he was weak and vulnerable on the cross. He was not Superman on the cross. The irony is that Jesus on the cross was the power of God. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, and the Corinthians are are infamous for missing the irony of just about everything, but the irony of Jesus' crucifixion. So Paul told them the message of the cross, which means the cross, is the power of God. The temple was nothing compared to the colossal power of sin and death that Jesus took on when he went to the cross. Jesus is the Son of God who came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus acts with the power of God to give his life for the sins of the world, and that is power. It's God's saving power, and it's there on the cross of Jesus Christ. How ironic. Scripture helps us to see not the appearance, but the reality of Jesus' death. The third irony is with the chief priests and scribes, verses 31 through 32, which say, "...he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe." Well, this irony is especially thick. Um, This taunt is especially thick with irony. It picks up the second charge. There was another charge brought against Jesus when he stood before the Jewish council. The high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Most Blessed? Jesus responded, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. At the cross, the chief priests also taunted Jesus. They taunted him to come down from the cross if he was God's Messiah. The Jews had various expectations about God's Messiah, yet overall they expected the Messiah to act mightily and deliver Israel. The Messiah was supposed to demonstrate the power of God such as God did in the past with Israel. Especially this taunt mocks Jesus, who did not look like he was acting with the power of God when he was nailed to the cross. The particular powerful act of God they wanted Jesus Jesus to do was to come down from the cross. So the pedestrians taunted Jesus to come down from the cross and show superhuman strength. The taunt of the chief priests was a little more refined than that. They wanted Jesus to come down from the cross and thus demonstrate that he had the power of God. If Jesus would do this, the chief priest said, then they would believe. In other words, seeing is believing. Now, this is ironic because they had seen Jesus do miracles, heal people, cast out demons. It's similar to what the Pharisees wanted Jesus to do earlier in the Gospel of Mark. They wanted him to do a miracle for them during his ministry. Mark says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And if you remember that story, Jesus sighs deeply and said, why does this generation seek a sign? So at the cross, the chief priests did not, believe, did not understand the nature of faith. They appeared to want to believe if Jesus did what they asked. However, the reality of faith is not dependent on miracles. Faith is a necessary condition for miracles, as Jesus said over and over again when he healed people. What did he always say after he healed the person? He said, your faith has made you well. Faith is a precondition for the miracle. So this is also ironic that they want to see in order to believe, and, and then they'll have faith. But in actuality, they need to have faith in order to see. But at the heart of the irony, that's a little irony, but at the heart of the irony with the chief priests is when they say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. To them, Jesus appeared to be unable to save anyone. The reality is that Jesus was saving the whole world right in front of them. Ironically, if Jesus did what the chief priests taunted him to do, he would have saved no one. If he had saved himself, he would have denied that he is the Messiah. He would not have established it. But because he was God's Messiah, he stayed on the cross. It's on the cross that Jesus is the Savior. It's on the cross that Jesus accomplishes God's salvation. So at the cross, Jesus appeared to be no king. He appeared to have no divine power. He appeared to be unable to save himself, let alone anyone else. The irony is that he was the king on his throne. His death on the cross was the power of God, and he saved us from our sin on the cross. Now, there were the Roman soldiers, the pedestrians, the chief priests, and the scribes at the cross, and there was Simon of Cyrene. He carried the beam of Jesus' uh, Jesus' cross. Simon did what Jesus calls all of us to do. In Mark chapter 8, after Jesus announced his impending death for the first time, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Simon took up the cross. Now you might say to yourself, well, yes, but he was compelled by the Roman soldiers. But for Mark... It's not how he ended up carrying the cross of Christ that matters. It's the fact that he did it. In contrast to those who taunted Jesus and thought they understood who Jesus was and what was happening on the cross, Simon shows us that we must have humility to grasp the irony of Jesus on the cross. We must have humility to take up the cross to understand what Jesus has done. Simon is the one who discovered the reality of Jesus' crucifixion. Not the pedestrians and not most of the Roman soldiers or the chief priests and the scribes. Now notice I just said most of the Roman soldiers. I say most because uh, there is one soldier who did. It's not in our text, but it happens one or two hours later on, during Jesus' crucifixion. And it is in the next reading that we have. One of the Roman soldiers professed his faith at the cross after Jesus died. It's in verse 39. We didn't hear it read this morning, but when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that he had breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. He saw the reality of Jesus on the cross. In the Gospel of Mark, this centurion was the first human being to rightly make this confession of faith. The first human. There were demons who... Confessed who Jesus was. There was the voice from heaven, God's voice, that confessed who Jesus was at his baptism and at transfiguration. But the first human to rightly confess who Jesus is, is this centurion. Now, Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, but he confessed it while he was trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross to die. So Peter's confession was true as far as it went, but it lacked faith in Jesus, who is the crucified Savior. The Roman centurion is the first person to confess faith in the crucified Jesus Christ. Now today, Jesus stands before us as the crucified Jesus, and we are called to carry the cross of Christ just like Simon did. We are called to follow the crucified Jesus because contrary to appearances, he is the king who rules over us. He is the son of God who revealed his power on the cross to defeat sin, death, and the devil. And he is the savior who gave his life to free us from sin and make us right with God. The crucified and risen Jesus speaks to you this morning, saying, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me like Simon. The high school I attended in Greeley, Colorado, had a plaque on the wall, a wall, by the office. And nobody pointed it out to me. Most of us were kind of in another part of the building and didn't really want to go down the hallway where the office was. So nobody pointed it out to me. It was out of the way. But one day I saw it, and I walked up, and I read it. And on the plaque were three questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? And these three questions resonated with me. Our society today answers those questions in terms of our self, the self. Who am I? Well, I'm whoever I think I am or who I feel like I am. It's based on myself. It has nothing to do with your relationship to human community, like your family, or what it means to be connected into human society. And most importantly, the modern answer would say it has nothing to do with God and his purpose for us. Why am I here? Again, our society answers that question by saying that it is whatever purpose you yourself come up with. So you must find your own meaning for life. And lastly, where am I going? Well, lately, certain agencies and activists will tell us that we're headed to extinction. Have you heard about the doomsday clock? I looked it up. It's a clock that was created, I think, in 1947 by some scientists that's supposed to tell us how close we are To doomsday, it's a clock that is counting down to midnight. Midnight's the end. The clock gets adjusted whenever there is some major threat in the world, like nuclear war, disease, climate, volatility. And right now, the clock reads 90 seconds to midnight. So we're close. In other words, we're on the brink of doomsday. And it turns out, if you look this up, that there are a lot of clocks out there counting down our extinction. Not just the doomsday clock, there are others. Um, there's a large digital clock in Times Square in New York City that counts down the time remaining to avert climate disaster. Other timekeepers predict when a cataclysmic asteroid will hit the Earth. And we just had an asteroid pass by. But they're saying one day one of those is going to hit us and that'll be it. Or when the sun will burn out as a red giant star. Others mark when drought and famine will overcome much of the Earth. And so more and more and more clocks. The answer these clocks give to that question, where am I going, is that we are going to destruction unless we change our ways. And certainly we need to change our ways as a society, but the answer does not take into account God and his higher purpose for us. It's no wonder people in our society are by and large lost. They don't know who they are, they don't know why they're here, and they don't know where they're going. Now, you Christians do know that. And maybe you have to be reminded from time to time, but you do know. You you know who you are. You know why you're here, and you know where you're going. As you follow Christ, carrying the cross like Simon you are to help people see the reality of Christ on the cross. And the reality is not what it appears to be. You've been helped to see the irony of Jesus' death. Now Jesus uses you to help others see it. And so you might start by explaining to them what irony is. Let's pray. Most gracious God, by the passion of your blessed Son, you have made an instrument of horrible, shameful death to be for us the means of life because your Son was crucified on it. Grant us so to glory in the cross of Christ that we may gladly suffer shame and loss for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let us stand and confess our faith with the creed in the bulletin. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come, Amen. So I'm going to ask you to sit down, and we're going to have the ordination and installation of the deacons. So I'm asking uh, Mr. Caesar, Mr. Hanum, and the elders to come forward. We <coughs> begin by reminding you of uh, the nature of the office of the deacon. In James, we hear that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. This is the orphans and the widows in their affliction to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Beloved in Christ, in the Christian churches of apostolic times, there were deacons. This office is ancient. It's, it's original in the church. And those offices were held, that office was held in honor. And those who were highly esteemed as deacons, uh, those who did that service, were highly esteemed in the early church and they worked alongside the company of the elders.
1: From early days, it was
0: a peculiar part of these office-bearers to be the instruments of the Church's ministry of compassion. This Church, therefore, Providence, has recognized the office and work of the deacon as in accord with the apostolic practice. In the course of time, new forms of work have been given to this office, and it has grown in value to the Church, while to it there have always been attached its ancient character as a representative of the church's purpose to follow Christ in compassion and ministry to the bodily needs of human beings. Uh, John and you know, John and Jack have been elected in the mode that's been approved and authorized for use in this congregation. We had a congregation meeting, they we were trained, and we were nominated, they were approved by the session and elected. So they've been elected to the office of deacon and they have signified their willingness to serve. So now I'm going to ask you, in the name of Jesus Christ, um, are you willing to do this work? And I'll ask that by asking you these questions. Since you have declared your willingness to take this office upon you, I now require you to answer these following questions that have been set out by the church um, for those who are ordained as deacons. Do you believe the scripture of the Old and New Testament to be the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? Do you approve the government discipline and worship of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? And do you promise to seek the purity, the peace, and the unity of the church? And lastly, uh, do you accept the office of deacon in this congregation and promise in reliance upon the grace of God, faithfully perform all the duties thereof? And to you, the congregation, I ask you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive these brothers as deacons, and you promise to yield uh, to them all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord, to which this office, according to the Word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles you. Okay. We're going to pray. he always made me needle.
3: <laughs> Let's
0: pray. O oh God, who is in Jesus Christ, who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, who for our sake became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be rich, who loved the church and gave himself up for it, and set apart and consecrated, created for us these offices of deacon and elder, and especially now we remember the office of deacon. We pray you would set apart and consecrate these, John and Jack, for that office. Give them your spirit of compassion for human needs. Inspire them with devotion to the church. Guide and sustain them in all their service until their work on earth is done. And bestow upon them the great rewards of your heavenly kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I now declare that Jack and John have been regularly elected, ordained, and installed as deacons in this church, agreeable to the world. God, and according to the Constitution of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that they are entitled to all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which this office entitles them. And to you, uh, Jack and John, I now charge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to be faithful in this office. Whatever you do in work or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus to give thanks to God the Father through him. And I charge you Christian people to be faithful to these deacons, remembering them in your prayers. Pray for them, Providing for the ministry that they uh, oversee in this church by giving your gifts, liberally, generously giving gifts to help, and your, your own time and, and manpower, woman power to support the service that they do in this church. We will sing number 255, Oh Jesus, we adore thee as we approach and come to the Lord's table. Number 255. Join me in the prayer printed voice. Gracious God, the fountain of all good, we bring to you our gifts, according to how
2: you prosper us. us, Enable us with our earthly things to
0: give you the love of our hearts and the service of our lives, and and always to remember those in need. Let your favor, which is is life, and your loving kindness, which is better than life, be upon us now and always. Jesus Jesus Christ, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Just a little comment before we serve communion. We have one tray of bread that's gluten-free. And it tastes, you probably won't be able to notice the taste. So, one tray. We've done this because we want to emphasize the one bread, the one cup. Um, That's all shown to you up here. We want to carry that forward to you as you come up. We want that to be what you receive. And so there's, a, there's more said probably about that during the announcements, but we want to emphasize that. So we've gone to the, the one gluten-free bread. Jesus said, let him who is thirsty come, let him who desires take the water of life without price. There's a wonderful promise in that life, of course. It's what, uh, water is what sustains life. And so Jesus gives us life and sustains us, but with his own body and blood. The apostle reminds the church, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion or participation in the body of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion or participation in the body of Christ? We receive Christ as he makes himself known to us in scripture and sermon and the sacrament. Having again heard the voice of Christ in scripture and sermon, let us now come to his table and receive his gifts. All who have been baptized, who have publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ and are communicant members of a Christian church, which means you belong to a Christian church, you are welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our new life and salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give and it is right in our bounden duty that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Holy Lord, Father Almighty, everlasting God, who did create the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, who did make man and woman in his own image, and whose tender mercies are over all your works. And we praise you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was in all points tempted like we are, and yet without sin. By whose grace we are enabled to subdue the sinful desires of the flesh and live no longer to ourselves, but to him who died for us and rose again. Therefore, with all the hosts of heaven, we worship and adore your glorious name, forevermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Glory be to you, O Lord Most High. Indeed, all glory and thanksgiving be to you, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, because you, of your great mercy, did give your only Son, Jesus Christ, to take our nature upon Him and to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And He did institute, and in His Holy Gospel, He commands us to continue a perpetual Remembrance of his death and sacrifice until he comes again. So now, having in remembrance his incarnation and holy life, his passion and precious death, his resurrection and glorious ascension, his continual intercession for us, we, your humble servants, plead his eternal sacrifice and pray that you would set forth with these your holy gifts, that you would set for us his crucified body and blood. And we offer our thanks and and our praise to you through Jesus Christ. We most humbly ask you, O merciful Father, to bless and sanctify with your Holy Spirit both us and these gifts of the bread and the cup so that the bread which we break may be the communion of the body of Christ and the cup of blessing which we bless may be the communion of the blood of Christ. And these would not be just simply an ordinary meal. And here we offer and present to you ourselves, our souls, and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. And we ask you mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, as in the communion of all the faithful in heaven and earth. We pray that you will fill in us the purpose of your redeeming love through Jesus Christ our Lord. By whom and with whom and in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory be to you, O Father Almighty, world without end. And we offer our thanksgiving with one voice saying, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body given for you. He also took the cup saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup. and Remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Merciful Lord, grant your people grace to withstand the temptations of this world, the flesh, and the devil, and with pure hearts and minds to follow you, the only God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Final hymns, number 174, O Christ, our King, Creator, Lord. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen.
3: Seated and good morning. I'm going to take a moment to look at the calendar. Um, Beginning with this morning, after our time of refreshment, our Christian education classes will be held Um, the gentle and lowly class here in the sanctuary, and then a study of uh, church stories from church history. Um, that pastor will lead for the um, the uh, like an oxym- the older youth, the high schoolish guys and or ladies. So two classes. I want to <clears throat> thank a couple of excuse me, notes of thanks. The John coming out of the bullpen. He wasn't scheduled to. To play to accompany this morning, but um, due to due to the road conditions, um, he had to fill in on the spot. So we're thankful for that. Also thankful for Sean doing the shoveling. <clears throat> um, last few days, I feel like I have a shovel attached to my hip at home. So it's nice to have somebody doing that. The session is pleased to uh, welcome and to add to our membership, uh, Joe and Jan Tobias, who we have received by letter of transfer from their previous church in Dayton. So give them an intentional welcome this morning, if you will. And I will just underscore what Pastor mentioned about the the bread this morning um, in an effort to Um, reduce some of the ungainliness of having several trays in play but more so to really reflect the one loaf um, the one Christ and our communion in him um, we have gone to one source for our bread or one one tray for bread and um, given that a number of our folks um, need to abstain from Regular bread, we're going to, we're using the gluten free. Um, I'm told the taste has improved over the years, but that's not our main, you know, <laughs> not our main reason. It's just kind of a little bonus, maybe. So, if you have any questions about that, you can see, see any of the uh, elders later. And that is all I have, Mr. Klaus. <clears throat>
1: It's one of those. So I anyway, mean, Emily and I are going to be starting a Bible so study in our home. Um, it's uh, given our children and their schedules, it'll probably be fairly intermittent every um, every three, four weeks. Uh, as supposed to be able to solidly say. But uh, So probably this applies to most of you who are uh, Siders or, or Clarkston, Auburn Hills, uh, Rochester types, but certainly anyone's welcome. If you want to drive up and see what is all about. So know, some Welcome, uh, invite friends if you want to. Um, I'll probably invite elements of my own family that live in the area. So, um, anyway, so we're going to be starting this, this Friday, uh, the 3rd, I think, February 3rd. So, if you are interested, you can uh, plan on attending. We'll do like 7 to 9 ish um, with about an hour of Bible study an hour of fellowship time, possibly pretzel bread, which is uh, thick and rich with <laughs> Topic, if you are interested in attending, let me know and I'll. Uh, it's, it's still fairly amorphous. Like our plan for the first one is to sort of see who's interested and uh, and, and see um, how people. We have some ideas on how we're going to approach it, but um, just kind of get an idea of, of who's hungry for what. Um, and uh, go from there. So if you're interested, let us know. And we uh, hope to see some of you Friday.
0: We're going to be shifting Friday evening prayer. To from the fourth Friday of every month to the third Friday. That frees me up that when needed, I can go to the jail. And They, they met last night. Uh, they went to the jail last night. So um, There's something else that I, I can't remember right now. So. Heidi? <clears throat> um, Amy
2: said her reading, She couldn't be here today, but she has a friend, Chris, speaking of the jail. He became a Christian while in prison, and this friend is having a very hard time finding... Work because of that history, and
3: just ask that you pray for him. So he is now out of—he's not no longer incarcerated, and is looking for work. Chris. Yeah, I think that's some
2: engineering possibilities
3: that okay. Okay. So pray for Amy's friend Chris, who came to Christ while in prison and is now. Out and looking for gainful employment and um, finding his record to be somewhat of a hindrance, so pray for him.
0: I remember my other thing. If I can see all the deacons up here after,
2: after this.
3: All right, you're dismissed.